This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to the Equity Mate Summer Series, proudly brought to you by Comsec, the home of investing. Over 12 episodes, we're deep diving into some of the most exciting, interesting, and well-known companies from around the world. Each episode, we'll be unpacking one company with one expert. We'll learn from their process and hear why they like the company. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. Are you well? I am well. That's different. (laughs) I'm pumped for this episode, Bryce. I'm excited because... Over the journey here at Equity Mates, we've managed to build a few experts in different areas. We've got Tracy and Blake and Craig from Crypto Curious. But whenever we have a crypto question, they're the people we go to. We have Thomas from Comedian vs. Economist. He's our in-house economist. Whenever we have a question about economics, we go to Thomas. <laughs> now we can officially coronate our third expert. Whenever we have a question about packaging, we know who to call. It's Anna Milne from Wilson Asset Management because for the second year in a row for the Equity Mate Summer Series, she has brought us a packaging company. Last year, she spoke to us about Amcor. Yep. This year, Anna is back, and today we're diving into Aurora. Yes. Anna, she's the Senior Equity Analyst at Wilson Asset Management, so there's no one better place to tell us <laughs> all things cans, glass, yep. cardboard. PET bottles, what, yeah. whatever. Yeah, so no, look, uh, packaging, it's a fascinating industry. It's a multi-billion, I think it's actually crossed a trillion dollars globally. Jeez. Not surprising. Um it's big. Yes. Well, let's hope <laughs> anyway, in the next 12 months. She'll give some more insightful analysis <laughs> it's than <big>. that. <laughs> it's big. Now, we must uh, give a huge thanks to Comsec for proudly supporting the Equity Mate Summer Series. The beauty of investing is you don't need a degree to get started to be successful. You can educate yourself. Comsec has a rich library of resources for you to stock up on tips and tools to help you find and research a stock and understand the stock market. Get $0 brokerage on your first 10 trades for Australian markets when you join. Download the Comsec app today or visit comsec.com.au. Comsec T's and C's and other fees and charges apply. And before we get started, we need to remind you that whilst we are licensed, we're not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Any information on this show is for education and entertainment purposes only. Any advice is general. Well, Bryce, before we speak to Anna Milne from Wilson Asset Management, Mm -hmm. let's talk about the company ourselves. We're talking about Aurora. Aurora, ASX ticker O-R-A. It is a leading packaging designer and manufacturer. Yeah, Australia loves a duopoly. (laughs) In all of our major industries, we seem to have a duopoly. Telcos, Telstra and Optus, supermarkets, Coles and Woolies, airlines, Qantas and Virgin. Even in industries that you don't think much about, packaging, Vizzy and Aurora. Yes, 
You're right. We And we actually spoke to Anna about Amcor last year, packaging again. That was at a global scale we'll, and we'll uh, ask her about that when she comes on the show. But Aurora is broken into two. Well, I mean, should we explain the corporate history? Yeah. That Aurora was part of Amcor and then got demerged in like 2013. That's the explanation. That's the explanation. So <laughs> anyway, so anyway, we're not talking about Amcor. We're talking about Aurora, and they are a packaging giant in their own right. They did a scratch over four billion dollars in Aussie dollars yep. in revenue last year, and they made about one hundred and eighty million in profit off that. Mm. Tight margins. Tight margins. So they split the business into two segments. The first is beverages. This segment manufacture a wide range of glass and PET bottles and aluminium cans for the beverage industry. And then the second part of the business is fiber and packaging. And this is where they produce things like corrugated cardboard boxes, paper bags, and other materials for, you know, the... uh, food and beverage industry, healthcare, e-commerce. I imagine those little bags that you get your vitamins in and those sorts of things. Yeah. <laughs> Very specific. It's example. basically like walk into a supermarket, look at any, get past the fruit and veg section, look at any aisle and all you are seeing is Vizzy and Aurora packaging. <laughs> like you are just surrounded by bright, <laughs> colourful cardboard, glass and plastic produced by these two companies. Yes. And turns out there's a lot of money in it. Yeah. yeah, not a lot of margin in it, but a lot of money. A lot it. of money in being in a duopoly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we're not going to talk about Vizzy and Amcor's history uh, with the ACCC. No. Uh, <laughs> um, so, Bryce, today, what do we need to know about the company? So, Ren, let's uh, break down revenue a little bit more. 63.5% of its revenue comes from the beverages part of its business. 36% comes from fibre and packaging. So I'm interested to talk to Anna about the investment thesis for this company because as we've said, low margin, I would expect this is a company, there's an element of pricing power from the fact that they're a duopoly and um, they're quite specialized and they're integral to products. You know, like all these fast moving consumer goods companies aren't, that they need a packaging supplier. Mm, mm. But as the consumer gets squeezed, as cost of living becomes more of an issue and as input costs rise for manufacturers, you think this would be a tough business to be in because you think you would see volumes fall from the consumer side, they'd be buying less and you would see costs rise but then you would also be think there would be, I guess, pressure from the FMCG players, from you know the big Nestle's and all of them of the world to keep their costs down. So you feel like they would be they'd be kind of getting squeezed in this environment from a number of sides. Mm. So it's an interesting one to be talking about as we kick off 2024. I think sustainability is also a key factor here. They position themselves as a leader in sustainable packaging. Obviously consumer demand is only increasing when it comes to what we receive from you know, Amazon and how our parcels come, less plastic, plastic that can be recycled, more cardboard, those sorts of things. Challenging environment to be in. As you said, Ren, a lot of the suppliers are looking for ways to make their packaging as cheap as possible. And I think sometimes when you bring in the sustainability element, that becomes a little bit more difficult. So I wonder if sustainability forms a part or how they're positioned in the market with sustainable product offerings. Yeah, this one... uh this one really grinds my gears a lot because um, 
I worked in the waste side of retail and like dealing with a lot of downstream packaging challenges, which were best solved by making different decisions upstream, like, you know, not coating your cardboard in plastic so it could be recycled or using types of plastic that weren't blended that had easy recycling options, Mm. you know, things like that. Mm. But when you go upstream and you talk to the packaging players, the conversation is always a product safety and freshness v packaging debate. And the argument, and it is an argument, it's a fair argument that the biggest sustainability challenge is food waste and that if we can make food last longer and we can waste less of it and therefore it's not sitting in landfills, breaking down, releasing methane, that's a better Better. environmental outcome. And it's worth the like extra plastic packaging or the unrecyclable packaging that then creates challenges downstream. Mm. Now, there's merits to both sides of the argument, but it just was one that was always really frustrating to me because we used to get these like weird and wonderful recycling challenges and it was like, here, how are you going to deal with this? I don't know. <laughs> what, what was the gen- who who generally won that debate? Oh, the packaging people. Yeah, because they've got all the money. Yeah, like the waste industry is always a deal with it. Yeah, like yeah. the if you think about who's upstream and who's downstream, upstream is like Nestle, Mars, Coles yeah. brand, Woolworths yeah, yeah, yeah. brand, yeah. like the biggest and deepest pockets, <laughs> and they're like upstream is sales, downstream is costs, mm. like um. The right packaging, the bright colors, all of that stuff, longer shelf life, like, yeah, well, I mean, longer shelf life is cost, but yeah, like, good packaging can help you sell a product. Uh, Cost of end of life options isn't going to help you sell it. Mm. It's just uh, how much it costs you to dispose Mm. of it. I think to that point, help you sell a product, like, they really make it, I think brands really make a big deal of it when their packaging is sustainable. You'll see it like yeah, written yeah, on yeah. it, Re- yeah. recycle me. This is made out of bamboo rather than, I don't know, plastic or yeah, whatever it yeah. may be. So it obviously has an impact. I think, Bryce, this is probably a good point to turn to Anna. I think for me, the context of this company is it's just like integral to our modern economy. It's not going anywhere. It's massive. It's a $3.5 billion company. It does over $4 billion in revenue. Hmm. But the question for us isn't, is this company going to be here in 10 years? Sustainable, yeah. Well, it's not even that. Like as investors, it's um, is it a good investment? It's cheap. It's trading at a 12 PA. But I think my view, not knowing it as well as Anna, is it feels like it's going to be, it's going to be facing a lot of headwinds. It's going to get squeezed. Nice. Well, So I'd be interested to see where Anna sees the opportunity. Before we bring in the packaging expert, Anna, if you're interested in exploring more investment opportunities, check out Comsec and the thousands of Australian and global listed companies available on the platform. Additionally, if you're looking for daily market updates, subscribe to Comsec Market Update, their daily podcast. Invest in shares on the US market from just $5 US brokerage. Visit comsec.com.au for more. Comsec T's and C's and other fees and charges apply. We'll be right back with Anna after this short break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Equity Mate Summer Series. So we're here with Anna Milne. Anna, welcome to Equity Mates. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, Anna, to kick off, how would you describe Aurora? So, in its most simple terms, Aurora is a packaging company. Uh, They have three very distinct businesses. They have their Australian business, which is uh, glass and cans, so beverage packaging. Uh, Then in the US, they have a business called Packaging Solutions and Visual, which is a fancy way of saying cardboard boxes and the supermarket at the end of the aisle, the kind of displays that promote certain products, they they do those displays. And then in Europe, uh, which we'll go into in more detail, I'm sure, is Saverglass, which is a more recent acquisition, which plays more in the high end on the, the beverage packaging side as well. Nice. Now, Anna, before we speak about Aurora in too much detail, we've got to ask, uh, <laughs> last year you joined us for the summer series and spoke about Amcor. Yes. You're back to speak about Aurora. <laughs> what is it about packaging? <laughs> well, it's interesting because I think last year when we decided to speak about Amcor, we were staring into quite a, a big downturn and Amcor at the time was seen as quite a defensive play. Now, I'm sure if you look at the share price, you'll realise this hasn't necessarily played out. Uh, The trends that impacted consumer discretionary and staple stocks worldwide were quite severe in some sectors and Amcor certainly wasn't immune. So not only did the earnings end up declining, but the perceived defensiveness also wasn't really there and therefore the valuation also compressed. But here we are back talking about another (laughs) packaging company. Aurora was actually spun off from Amcor Mm. in 2014. Mm. Uh, It was almost, I think, considered the ugly duckling and now it's turning into a bit more of a swan potentially. Nice. Nice. (laughs) Well, uh, let's talk about how you analyse a company like Aurora. So when you look at it, what are the metrics that matter? And um, yeah, what what are the key things that you're watching from a business and a financial point of view? A tip for analysing all companies, whether they be tech companies, small mining companies in WA, or more traditional industrials companies, is to go on the ASX and go to their latest annual report And within the annual report is a uh, remuneration report and you can see what the executive management team is paid and how they are paid. So it has their short-term incentive and long-term incentive plans and the metrics that they need to reach in order to earn their full potential. So looking at that for Aurora, the first hurdle that they need to meet is return on average funds employed. And it's a bit of a mouthful, R-O-A-F-E. Yeah, I don't know if I've come across this <laughs> yeah. one before. No, it's slightly more unusual, but it's it's similar to the likes of a, a ROIC, a return on invested capital, and in that it is really just the profit earned over the capital invested in the company. And it's a traditional measure used for the likes of industrials companies where they are generally quite capital intensive and it measures how much they can really make their capital sweat and generate profit from that. Uh, For reference, when Aurora was spun out in 2014, they had a 9% ROAFE and it's now sitting at around 22%. Oh, wow. um, Management will be cheering. (laughs) (laughs) So that is the first metric. The second is just earnings per share growth. If management 
gross earnings at 8% per annum or greater, they can earn their full entitlement in that regard. And 8% is quite high when you think about it in the context of this is a traditional industry generally growing at GDP or the same rate as the economy. Uh, so to really to grow at 8%, you need to be doing something to your margin profile. You need to be doing some quite clever, acquisitive kind of growth or entering new verticals, new customers and all the rest. It's not really just status quo kind of growth. Or borrowing a whole bunch of money and buying back stock. (laughs) (laughs) That is another way. That is another method. (laughs) If you've got the capital available. (laughs) What happens when you go to that part of the report and the metrics that they are getting remunerated on, you don't agree with though? Like if that's not really what you believe to be an important metric to measure the success of the business, how do you then play that? I think as an institutional investor, this is where we can really advocate on behalf of our retail shareholders. If we have meetings with the management team or the board, we can discuss with them how they are paid. And if we agree or if we bring it up, we probably more likely disagree and can maybe talk about why we disagree and what we would rather have them measured on. Mm. Uh, And then it is voted uh, at the AGM. Yeah, I feel like this is a bit of a tangent, but I feel like we've seen a fair few strikes against companies in the latest reporting season. Mm. Yes. The remuneration Mm. reports or proposals being Mm -hmm. voted down. Particularly those that have played out in the press as well and uh, Mm. the share prices haven't really gone accordingly. Mm. And it makes sense, you know. Uh, if they're not doing their job. So I guess uh, back to Aurora. So you've uh, looked at some of the key metrics that you've mentioned too there. Are there any other ones that um, are important to know that management are being incentivized on? I think they really summarize the business quite well. If you just looked at earnings growth, for example, it isn't really that relevant because if they are growing for the sake of growing and they're not meeting the return hurdles and you don't want that kind of growth. Mm. But if they meet the return hurdles and they're growing above that, I think it is more than acceptable. What we don't need to look at with these kind of companies is those metrics that are, I guess, more modern, such as uh, EV to sales and TAMs and the rest, which you rely on for companies that aren't generating earnings. But this is a traditional business. You can look at the metrics found in intelligent investor types of books mm. and they'll apply to the likes of Aurora. Mm. Yeah. I mean, this would have been a business that was existed when Benjamin Graham was around, <laughs> unlike some of these more modern businesses. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, that's what management are running towards in terms of incentives. And mm-hmm. uh, that's the goals that they're setting their team. What, I guess, is the bull case? Like where where does Wilson's thesis come from around Aurora? So splitting the conversation to three parts because their geographies are quite distinct. In Australia, it's really the Cairns business that's driving growth. Cairns in general are growing really strongly. When you think about them from a sustainability perspective, they're not very energy intensive to make and they're easy to recycle. Mm. Uh, You can market across the entire Cairns. They're quite good from a business perspective when it comes to promoting their product, they're easy to ship, they're easy to consume. Uh, it makes sense that cans are doing so well and Aurora has really leaned into that and they have quite a, a large capital expenditure program over the next few years to bring on more canning facilities and more production lines and their capital expenditure is actually already underwritten by their customers. Their customers need extra capacity and they've said that we will take up any capacity that you can provide us. So the returns on that business are quite strong. We expect that's just a matter of execution. The glass business, on the other hand, is quite energy intensive and is often seen as not really the future, but for the likes of a wine bottle, we're probably not going to drink that out of a can. And that's really... (laughs) Back to the goon bag. (laughs) 
Uh, and they have actually been quite impacted the last few years from the Chinese tariffs on Australian wine. So we expect that there will be an announcement relatively imminently uh, reversing that. So over the medium term, that should drive the glass business again because I've had to divert slightly into more olive oils and the like, uh, which is just uh, lower margin because it. it's not what their factories are designed to do. Uh, just going off on the other couple of businesses. So in the US, it's actually been a big turnaround story. They previously weren't able to see the profitability of each individual customer in the US, uh, but they now have the SAP IT systems where they can go through each customer and those that aren't generating returns either reprice them appropriately or ditch them. How could they it's, not see I that? I know. I was just that thinking that. so it's bizarre wild. that they couldn't figure that out. <laughs> you, uh, you'd you be surprised the number of what you consider sophisticated large companies don't <laughs> necessarily have the disclosures uh, to that level. But wow. it, it's they've done a, a great job and we really saw that at the last result that their margin just really surprised the upside. It's such a big market as well. Now that the margin piece is coming through, they can probably start to grow again. So that's the US piece. But then most importantly, and what's really going to drive Aurora is Saver Glass. So they bought Saver Glass for over 2.2 billion Aussie dollars. Uh, and they are a mid-cap size company. So it was it was transformative for them and required a big equity raise. Mm. And what Saver Glass does is they design, manufacture and detail the packaging for high-end liquor and wine. So customers include Grey Goose, which is, you know, known for their kind of frosted mm. glass yeah, yeah. and Hennessy, to name a couple. Uh, but they actually own the rights to the designs, which is quite a big moat for them. They never really lose customers. These relationships have gone on for decades and it's quite valuable IP for these big global brands that use Saver Glass. They're a French business, right? Yes, and so, so well, why no, is Now they're an Australian business. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so why is premium glass the, like a, what's the growth drivers behind that? At, like, is it people well, are luxury spending? Like what's, what's the growth driver of, I guess, premium glass at the moment? I think luxury in general has seen, since COVID in particular, has really seen a, a lot of growth, whether it be in alcohol or, or clothing and, bags, jewellery and the the like. But what we've really seen from a, a, there's a generational shift in that younger people are drinking less, but they are drinking nicer mm-hmm. drinks on average. So you're more likely to get yourself a nice bottle of gin or vodka instead of, you know, having, yeah. having two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the, the growth that they've experienced over the last few years has been remarkable and they are pretty confident in that continuing yeah right so i think for me when i think about you know aurora and the the business you've just laid out for me it just feels a bit disparate it's a Mm. cardboard business in north america it's a glass a high-end glass business in europe and it's a can and glass business in australia but then even within that the glass business in europe is expected to be a key driver while the glass business in australia is expected Mm. to not do that well or maybe it's a turnaround so like how do how do you build like a coherent I guess thesis around this company and like expect management to manage different pack like it's all packaging yeah um, but it's it's all different packaging I imagine with different competitors and different customers in each Mm. business so like how do you think about the fact that it's so separate I think you've summarized it really well and I I believe that was a key element to the thesis in buying Saver Glass. They are very Europe-centric. They want to grow in the US, but they don't 
have the reach or the customers or the capabilities. So they intend on leveraging the existing US business and the existing customers in the US and taking Saverglass to the US more that way. And then in Australia, as you said, the glass business isn't in decline, but it's not necessarily a big driver of growth for the company over the medium term. And they're going to start manufacturing uh, using Saver Glasses techniques and the like in the Australian facilities. So in a way, it's kind of the glue for the other two companies together. This isn't Aurora's first acquisition. They've done a few acquisitions in the past and they've always been very successful, extracted more synergies than initially anticipated. And management of really good executors in our view uh, based on what we've seen so far. So there is scepticism for sure around the deal, but if you look on the positive sides, there's definitely as many positives there too. Mm. Yeah, nice. So let's turn to the bear case. We're in an environment at the moment where we've got central banks trying to crush consumer demand (laughs) and no doubt. Crush consumers, full stop. (laughs) Yeah, true. (laughs) Particularly those between the ages of 20 and 40. (laughs) (laughs) And no doubt Aurora is closely linked to consumer companies. And and, uh, so, so talk us through how you see the current macro environment impacting Aurora and then more broadly, what are other red flags that you're looking for when it comes to, you know, the bear case? Mm Mm-hmm. I would say that the bear case is a well-trodden path. I mean, as at date of recording, it's gone from $3.40 to $2.60 uh, in a matter of months. And there are reasons for this and they have good basis. I mean, the first one being they did a very large equity raise that took a while for the market to digest. I mean, when you raise equity, you have to raise it at a discount to the last close of the share price to attract investors. And often if you're buying a business on a higher multiple, if you think about it mathematically, the earnings will change, but if the share price, if the number of shares on issue tra- changes by more, you know, there will there'll be a natural decline in the share price from that. So firstly, it was the equity raise. It had traded really well into it following the result when they had a, it was driven by the, the US. The US result was very strong, traded very well, and then they had an equity raise. And then following that, there has been more and more concern around the earnings profile for Saverglass. And it goes to your point around the economic slowdown that we are right in the middle of. Mm. Um, And particularly for Saverglass, a destocking event. So the easiest way to describe a destocking event is that if you own a shop and you have less customers coming in and buying things, what do you do? You stop bringing more inventory into the store Mm. and you tell your suppliers, actually, I'm good this month. Let's Mm. chat again next month. And then your suppliers tell their suppliers, Mm. actually, I'm okay this month. Let's chat again next month. And it's a chain reaction uh, which has occurred around the world and really been the domino effect of the slowdown that we're currently in. If you add to that that we've just come out of COVID where supply chains were really difficult. So that's really been what's driving Saverglass. And from a luxury alcohol perspective, it's not as fast moving as beer and wine where you might buy it on the bottle shop on the way home and then drink it with your friends that night. If you buy a nice bottle of something, it will likely sit on your cabinet for a few months Mm. and you can enjoy it. So the inference for that for Aurora really means that this destocking event could be more protracted than the market was expecting and that Aurora management was expecting. Uh, so go on for longer and likely be more severe than maybe other companies. So that has been the thesis 
uh, where we've landed is that they bought this business for 2.2 billion, where it's currently trading on the stock market. It's, the implied valuation is 1.5 billion. Management knew that the slowdown was happening it was when they purchased it. Uh, they have said to the market that they've made very conservative assumptions around demand. Uh, and it's a business that doesn't come up every day. It's one of the only of its kind in the world. So they couldn't really choose necessarily the exact timing that they were to acquire this business and they have forecasted accordingly. So we think the bear case is priced into the market and that is the consensus view. But I understand what's probably driven it to where it is today. Yeah, Yeah, okay. It's fascinating. On the consumer packaging side, we were speaking about this a little bit earlier. It feels like their packaging companies are between a rock and a hard place. Like if, if we think about like a cardboard business, on one hand, they've got consumers that are probably buying less. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other hand, they've got, uh, in many cases, input costs rising, but then they have big multinational FMCG companies like Nestle and Mars who don't want to wear any price increases because they're also dealing with input cost rises. Mm-hmm. So it feels like they're just kind of, stuck and their margins would get squeezed as a result. Is that right? Or is, um, you know, I guess they're kind of a duopoly in Australia. Do they have more pricing power than we think? Mm, I think for the saver glass side of things, when you think about the cost of a nice bottle of something, the packaging element of it is quite small. Therefore, their customers are less price sensitive than the FMCG types that Mm. you're talking about, like a Nestle or or a Coca-Cola. So they're quite insulated in that regard, but certainly from a cans and glass perspective, quite constrained given the growth that it has experienced. Uh, And so their customers have less bargaining than than they otherwise would in this environment. Mm. There you go. You learn something new every day. Massive demand for cans. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. Yeah. Now, Anna, um, we got to chat about sustainability. They committed to a sustainability, I don't know, strategy a number of years ago. How does that form part of your thesis or does it form part of the bear case? Just talk us through that. If we look at the company in 10 years' time, for example, there will be this shift towards higher value, lower volume production. And again, that goes to why they purchased Saver Glass. They want to enter those more niche categories where they add value across the value chain. They help with the design, they manufacture it, they finish it, they bottle it. They're involved the entire way along so they can clip the margin through the chain. Uh, So we think that will really form a big part of their medium to longer term strategy. And when they form more of the value chain, it means they can have more of a say in the Mm. sustainability piece as well. They're no doubt definitely held to account from a sustainability perspective. So I guess right now it's a can and glass business in Australia, a glass business in Europe and a cardboard business in the United States. What does it look like in 10 years? I think firstly, it's geographical expansion. So as you said, they're quite separate businesses. So it's the spreading of of their tentacles, I suppose, across each of their customers and each of the regions and using of their capabilities uh, in Europe, for example, in in the US and Australia. So it's going to be more adjacencies, uh, more customers, greater geographical reach and greater margins that come with a larger portion of the value chain. Ultimately, this is an organic growth story for now. They have just done this big acquisition and they need to execute on that and the market will not be happy if they 
they decide to go and buy something else, for example. But once this is digested in a few years, they are quite acquisitive. So it is highly likely, I would say, that they at least execute on some bolt-ons to their strategy, if not more slightly larger acquisitions. We're always happy to fund acquisitions if they are great opportunities and are returning uh, levels that are well above their costs of capital. So it's organic growth. In the more medium term, it is the M&A piece. And then like all slightly mature companies, you have the growing dividends and the potential for the other capital management initiatives, such as buybacks or special dividends down the track. And then, uh, as we mentioned earlier, it spun out of Amcor in 2013, 2014, Mm -hmm. almost a decade ago. Is it competing against its former owner in in any markets or do you see that happening down the line? They're very different in that Amcor is quite focused on the more plastic side of things, which inherently has... Um, probably more challenges, but maybe more opportunities when it comes to a sustainability perspective. They're very much so the more recyclable cans and glass and the like. Mm. Okay. Fascinating. Whole yeah. world of packaging. packaging. <laughs> what packaging company will you pitch next year? <laughs> That's all we have on the ASX. Yeah, I was going to say, is your, is your dream IPO busy? <laughs> Uh, Well, Anna, as always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And uh, we're looking forward to having you back next year for the Summer Series. (laughs) Thanks for having me. And before we leave, a huge thanks to our Summer Series partner, Comsec, the home of investing. If you're looking for more support and resources to build confidence in the market, head to their content hub. Otherwise, you can get $0 brokerage on your first 10 trades for Australian markets when you join, brokerage on US stocks from just five USD, and invest from as little as $50 through the ComBank app. Offers galore. Download the ComBank app today (laughs) or visit combank.com.au. Comsec T's and C's and other fees and charges apply. Investing in overseas markets exposes you to additional risk. Love it. Now stick around because next episode we have Andrew Page talking about Drop Suite. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.